The Last Word with Matt Cooper. The song at 17 is certainly an iconic track. It's nearly 50 years old. It'll be 50 years old next year, which means to people in my generation, we're familiar hearing it growing up. But it's been familiar to many generations because it's appeared in works such as The Simpsons or Mean Girls, and it's been covered by multiple artists like Celine Dion, Anita Kerr. But we're delighted to be joined for the Culture Club tonight by the singer-songwriter responsible for At 17 and many other works as well. Janice Ian, thank you very much for joining us. Matt, it's a pleasure to be here. Great to see you. And you're here because of two reasons. The first, a special evening honouring your work at the National Stadium this Sunday as part of Tradvest. Tell us about that. I can't sing anymore. I got something called vocal scarring. Nothing to do with COVID, just a, a weird coincidence. And so a year and a half ago, I had to cancel my last tour. I always meant to end up with a three-night stand at the National. And Aoife Scott and I met, I guess, about a year ago. And she came back and apparently said to Tradfest, I have this idea. Janice can't sing, but what if we had seven or eight singers do her songs? And so they contacted me and I said, well, I don't know if you can find seven or eight singers to do that. And they said, yeah, we can. And I said, okay, if I can pick them. So I started talking to people like Mary Black, who I'd known for a while, or Mairead Nuini, I'm trying to get words right, um, who had done some work with me on a project called Better Times Will Come and had sung beautifully. And I just found that everybody was saying yes. And so then it sold out, I guess 75% of it sold out based on one radio show before the tickets went on sale. So that was great. And then the other part of it is the Lifetime Achievement Award that they gave myself and Ralph McTell this morning in the Dublin Chapel, which was amazing, the Castle Chapel. Congratulations. Thank you. It was, it was very... I didn't expect to be as moved as I was, I have to say. But Ireland's always been... Um, I don't know how to put it. it. It's just always felt very welcoming to me. The country and the people have been kind to me. Tell us about not being able to sing. How difficult is that for you? I spent most of my time not thinking about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Being honest. No, it's all right. It's all right. Um, I don't think you ever get used to losing something like that because it's so big. I've been singing since I can remember. And then I started playing and then I started writing. So singing has always been the main leg of the tripod. And then suddenly... The tripod is gone, and you don't know, I don't know what to do next. Um, it's so intimately connected with my writing and with the way that I think. And and people say, well, surely you can sing in the shower. Well, yeah, I can sing in the shower, but I'm not sure what will come out. You know, I can't hit my notes. And I always prided myself on having good intonation. So, I don't know. I I know that I love writing, Matt, and I know I've always felt myself a writer first. So I'm hoping that I will find the energy to uh, to just plunge into some writing. I'm just going, it's ridiculous to say and a cliche, but I'm, I'm really trying to take dealing with it a day at a time, an hour at a time. What happened to you that you did lose your voice? It was just a weird virus. It was not COVID. I mean, my crew and I had managed to tour for three months and nobody got COVID. And then I woke up one night uh, with a sore throat that felt like my throat had exploded and... 
I got some virus that caused a hemorrhage, and next thing I knew, I was seeing doctors and doctors and doctors for almost six months, and I kept thinking, something is not right, it's not healing, something's wrong, something's wrong. And then finally I saw a specialist um, who took film of me making noises and showed me the film, and there's a scar. There are scars on my right larynx, and there's a couple of surgeries that can remove them, but they come back because... When you remove scar tissue, it comes back. Uh, and they don't know how long it would last. And I made the decision to cancel everything. And I, I just thought I can't do that to fans and promoters. Because you speak beautifully and clearly, which I suppose emphasizes that there's an enormous difference in the singing voice that you need to perform. Well, and it's also been a year and six, a year and four months, I think a year and six months since the diagnosis. So for a while there, I wasn't sure if my voice would come out <laughs> sounding like Miles Davis or if it would sound like myself. And lately it's been coming back, but it's still, uh, it wears out easily. It's just strange. And the second reason we've invited you on for Culture Club is not just because of what's happening in the National Stadium this Sunday, but you've also re-released your most famous album, Between the Lines, which includes At 17. Correct. So nearly 50 years old. At 17, it must have given you an enormous amount, but has it been defining for you, or in some respects, has it Absolutely. limited people from knowing about all the other things that you have done? You know, I, I know artists who resent their hits and don't sing them, and I've been really lucky that every hit I've ever had anywhere, including I'm in Japan, is a completely different bunch of songs. Um, Australia is a completely different bunch of songs. Every single one is a song I'm proud of. So I'm very lucky with that 17 that... When I was singing, I loved singing it, and I heard Aoife Scott singing it the other day, and I, it just killed me. I and mean, it's beautiful to be able to step away from it and watch a younger generation and other generations be performing it and, and take heart from it. Yeah, and why do you think it has endured over the previous five decades and has ended up being so central to movies like Mean Girls? I think in part because it's true. It's honest in part because it's beautiful. I mean, the melody sneaks in before you know what I'm saying, so it's less scary. I think it talks about something that is very scary to talk about, but that gives people a safe way to connect through it. So if you're a parent, say, and you give it to your son or daughter, it's like saying, I, I get it, I understand. And if you play that with your friends, then you all know that you all understand it. it it's a great piece of communication. It's, that's a cliche, it's a privilege for me. It's a privilege. Let's go to your Culture Club choices. Yeah. So I have all the questions that we put to all of our guests as they join us. So, Janice Ian, to start, what would you remember as the first piece of music, probably a single that you ever bought? Can you remember? It would have been either Joan Baez, Nina Simone or Odetta. One of, one of the three. You know, I have to remember, I, I started buying my own records. I was 10, and I was making money babysitting the neighbors. So records were very expensive. I only bought mono, and they had to be available in the cheap bins, which meant a lot of folk music in America. Um, but prob probably Odetta would be my first choice, yeah. Let's hear a little bit of Odetta, Hit or Miss. Great stuff, Odetta, Hit or Miss. So, I'm going to ask you the impossible question for somebody so involved in music as yourself a favorite album can you nominate one? Oh, there's albums that i go back to when i need 
to get my head on straight, and that would be Billie Holiday. Uh, there's albums I go to just to listen. When I want to relax, that would be Keith Jarrett's Cold Concert. But I think in terms of just an influence when I was young, my parents had a record called Miss Aluba that is a field recording made in what was then the Congo, I believe. Oh, way back in the 30s, maybe. And it's a Congolese version of the Mass, the Catholic Mass, in that language, done by an all-male, I believe, choir. And I grew up on that, and it exposed me to a completely different way of hearing voices and instruments. So I, I would pick the Miss Aluba. Yeah. This is definitely the most original choice I think we've had on the really? Country Club. <laughs> yes. Let's hear a track from it called Dance. So, Jealousy, would you describe yourself as sort of being a fan of what might be called world music? Would you listen to almost anything from anywhere to get influences, Absolutely. to get enjoyment? Absolutely. One of, the me- one of the big things I learned, because when, when I was in my teens, I was fairly precious about music and everything else. And, you know, I thought folk music had to be this and rock and roll had to be this. And uh, then I had my life changed several times by things like the Miss Aluba and other artists and I realized that it was all music. And even if I didn't like it, that didn't mean that it wasn't great. So it was very instructive. I think um, it's, it's easy to only like what you're familiar with. And you have to give it a chance. You have to give it some time. So then give us favorite bands or artists. I'm not asking uh, for one because there must be so many. Oh, well... I was watching TV one day, and I think it was Fame or some show, someone sang a song that just blew me away. The lyric just blew me away. And I remember I spent the next day on the computer trying to figure out whose song it was and who had sung it, and it turned out to be a song by My Chemical Romance, who I hadn't listened to until then. And I immediately bought the album and fell in love and uh, actually used it as my opening music for all of my gigs in America when I was still touring and the song is sing and what what they say about who you're singing for to me as an artist totally resonated because you're not singing for the haves you're singing for the have-nots and the would-bes explain that to me a little more the people who already feel like they're okay and they have everything they need I don't know actually if there's anybody who, th- who thinks like that but I'm, I would bet a couple of billionaires might um <laughs> But the rest of us, we go through our lives and we make wishes. You know, we wish that maybe we had a little more money or we wish that we had somebody who loved us the way that we want to be loved or we wish that we were taller or shorter or what, whatever it is. But here they were, My Chemical Romance, saying, I'm singing for the people who are disenfranchised. And it's such a big word, but I'm singing for the people who don't have anybody to sing for them. And that's what a song like At 17 is. It's a voice for people who are voiceless. That's the artist's job to me. You're supposed to sing for people who can't say those things themselves. We are getting deep here, Matt. We are. Let's hear a little bit of My Chemical Romance. Sing. My Chemical Romance and Sing. Janice Ian, you're bringing us on quite a musical tour. (laughs) You know, I tried so hard. There were a couple of covers I did in my show, um... Uh, yeah, there was, there was a Beatles song and another cover. I, I was doing um, These Boots Were Made for Walking for a while with Tom Paxton. I tried so hard to figure out how to do this song with just an acoustic guitar, and I, I just couldn't figure it out because I was desperate to sing it. <laughs> 
Just a brilliant song. What about best gig you were at? Well, gosh, there've been there've been I've been lucky enough to be at a lot of really great gigs. Um, I saw Elton when it was just him in, on the piano with Ray Cooper, and uh, gosh, I was there the first night that he played at the Troubadour. Saw Bette Midler the first time at the Troubadour, but sorry, where was the Troubadour? Uh, sorry, the Troubadour was in Los Angeles, and it was an it is an, it was an iconic club where you had to play, but. Um, the owner I think dubbed, Elton John, the movie, the Elton John movie actually does show is it? playing there, yes. Yeah, blew us all away. Yeah. Bette Midler, first time there. But um, the best gig overall was one I didn't expect to really love, which was Natalie Cole. I liked her as a person. I liked her singing, but the gig itself, the staging and everything, they came out and they looked like they were in an Egyptian hieroglyph. And there was this backdrop of hieroglyphs and they walked on stage, these women, her and her singers, in these amazingly high heels, which is already impressive. It was like the first time I saw Danny LaRue come down a staircase wearing those high heels, you know. And she just sang great. She was fabulous. And I got to visit with her afterwards, which was a real thrill after seeing such a great show. Let's hear a little bit of Natalie Cole singing Mr. Melody. This is live in London. Natalie Cole, big vocal performance there, Mr. Yeah. Melody. But does that suggest, Janice, that you actually think that performance on stage, particularly if you go to a gig, has to be more than just listening to the singer, the songwriter on the stage, so there's more to it? Yeah, it has to be a show. I come out of the folk ethic and jazz. So when I was growing up, it was very much, uh, here's my song, and it's fabulous, and I'm fabulous, and so I'm just going to stand here and sing it. And then one day I realized how incredibly boring that was. And so I started talking between songs. Arlo Guthrie taught me to do that. And I found that it was so much more fun to tell the audience a little bit about the song, a little bit about my life, and then talk about their lives. And then that morphed into, why don't I take a big hero guitar solo? Because girls weren't taking hero guitar solos. So at the Willie Nelson July 4th picnic, I stood out on the mains with my guitar and I used the feedback and everything. If you can have fun doing it, then it's much more fun for the audience as well. We've got to take a break. Janice Ian is with us for the Culture Club today, ahead of the special evening honouring her work at the National Stadium this Sunday as part of Tradfest. And of course, she's also re-released her most famous album, Between the Lines, which includes At 17. But we're going to move away from music and we're going to talk about movies and books and television in the second part Hello. of the Culture Club when we come back after this. Welcome back. Janice Ian is with us for the Culture Club. So we're going to move away from music now, Janice. All right. And we ask favourite movie or actor or director, and you've given us quite a few choices, so clearly you're a bit of a movie buff, are you? Uh, it's my relaxation, you know. It's it's sort of like what I do, but not what I do, so I can watch it without analysing it. I, I love a good movie. I, this was such a hard question. It was just impossible. But... For some reason, Barton Fink is just about my favorite movie to watch over and over and over again. By the Coen brothers. Yeah, by the Coen brothers, who uh, I'm sure everybody would pick the other one with the scarecrow and everything. But for me, Barton Fink, there's something about that. And and the way he's just used, and John Goodman is just so wonderfully evil in it. Um, I love that movie. I can't tell you how much. It's not John Goodman in the clip we have. It's John Tortoro and Michael Lerner in a scene from Barton Fink. It's a great clip. Anyway... I had Lou read your script for me. I gotta tell you, Fink. It won't wash. 
With all due respect, sir, I think it's the best work I've done. Don't gas me, Fink. If your opinion mattered, I guess I'd resign and let you run the studio. Well, it doesn't, and you won't. And the lunatics are not going to run this particular asylum, so let's put a stop to that room, huh? Right now. Yes, sir. I had to call Beery this morning. Tell him we were pushing the picture back after all I told him about quality, about that bond think feeling. How disappointed we were. Wally was heartbroken. The man was devastated. He was... Well, I didn't actually call him. Lou did. That's a fair description, isn't it, Lou? Yes, Colonel. Hell, I could take you through it. Step by step. Explain why your story stinks. But I won't insult your intelligence. Well, all right. First of all, this is a wrestling picture. The audience wants to see action, adventure, wrestling, and plenty of it. They don't want to see a guy wrestling with his soul. Well, all right, a little bit for the critics. But you make it the carrot that wags the dog. Too much of it they had for the exits. I don't blame them. There's plenty of poetry right inside that ring, Think. Look at hell ten feet square. Blood, sweat, and canvas. Blood, sweat, and canvas. These are big movies, Think, about big men. In tights. Both physically and mentally. Especially physically. We don't put Wally Beery in a fruity movie about suffering. I thought we were together on that. Sorry if I let you down. I, I have had that conversation. I have had that conversation with people producing albums and choosing songs. I've had very close to that exact conversation. Nobody wants to hear about feelings. Who cares about feelings? It's the beat. You were chortling away. No, oh, I was just that. laughing at it because it, it, it is such a Hollywood trope. You also gave us a favourite actor, Robert Downey Jr., who we were only talking about last night for the Oscar nominations because of his remarkable performance in Oppenheimer. He's an astonishing actor. You know, I studied with Stella Adler, one of the great acting teachers of my time, and I studied with Stella for 10 years, and I have just so much respect for actors. I'm friends with a lot of actors, and somebody once said to me, aren't you going to act? And I said, I have too much respect for the profession to do that. I'm a songwriter and a singer. But he's incredible because he, first of all, he pulled himself out. Uh, he's got all that talent. And it's easy when you're young to coast on your talent. Stella said to me at one point when I said my writing was going downhill, she said, you're at the age where talent is not enough. And that's a hard one to learn when you've always been really talented that you now have to put all the work in. He puts the work in, and he's just brilliant. What about directors? Well, Kurosawa, I mean, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but Kurosawa is amazing. And the Coen brothers, hysterical. You know, we watch Fargo probably once a year. Yeah. And, and uh, oh, what's her name, Greta, who, who directed Barbie? Greta Garwig. Yes, thank you. She's amazing. I'm really curious what she'll do next. It'll be very interesting to see. Oh, you liked Barbie, I take it, did you? I did. I thought it was great. But, you know, the surf and sand in California, I lived in California. So much of that was real. <laughs> cars and stuff. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Okay, what about plays or theater or musicals? What have you gone for here? Well, there's some plays that I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. I saw a chorus line opening night, and then twice again, I saw uh, M. Butterfly, the original, three times. Again on opening night, and I saw Lily Tomlin. Uh, I didn't know her. She'd presented me with my Grammy, I guess in 75, but I'd never really met her beyond that. And I went and saw her the first time in Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, and it blew me away that I went right back to the box office the next morning and said, do you have any tickets left for tonight? So I was only in New York for three days, 
And every one of those nights, I went to see that. Uh, and she's now a friend, which is really cool. I mean, I, I brag on knowing Lily Tomlin. Let's hear a little bit from that. I hope I never feel that low again. I used to be so sensitive. Sometimes I would think of the Kennedy family and I would just burst out into tears. I don't burst out into tears as much as I used to. And I hardly ever think of the Kennedys anymore. Oh, sure, in November's, but that's all. Oh, how they lied about this health club. Talk about false hopes. I'm sorry. I, the place to get thin and meet good-looking men. Every good-looking man here is mostly looking at himself. But I keep coming. I, I tell myself I'm keeping fit. The truth is I pig out one week and starve next. I have gained and lost the same 10 pounds so many times over and over again that my cellulite must have deja vu. And all that business about exercise releasing endorphins. I have not felt so much as one endorphin being released. Once more, false hopes. Hey, but if it weren't for false hopes, the economy would just collapse, I bet. Well, Slinky Dinks, I'm out of here. Oh, my God. Lily Tomlin in Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. Written by Jane Wagner, her partner and now wife, I believe. Yeah, I think they got married. But just the entire production, they used a lot of... um, a lot of sound cues, and the sound cues were really, really complicated. You know, the, there's the one young girl who's the equivalent of a goth now, I guess, and she comes in and she's wearing chains everywhere, and then she starts to unzip her clothing to change, and it's like zip, 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 zip. And you go through about 12 zips before you go, oh, my God. She's just a marvelous actress, Lily, just amazing. Okay, what about books and authors? Well, I ran across Dylan Thomas when I was 12. Somebody gave me a poem called In My Craft or Sullen Art that's about being an artist and why you're an artist. And I have literally carried that poem with me everywhere and had it on the wall of any, anywhere I work at home uh, all my life since because it, it moved me so much that somebody really understood. So Dylan Thomas, um, Anne McCaffrey was a great friend of mine and of course she moved here from the... United States. Um, Jane Hirschfield, I think, is just a wonderful poet. I, I read a lot. John Varley, Persistence of Vision. Terry Bisson, who unfortunately just died, one of the great short story writers. Connie Willis, another great short story writer. <laughs> Stop me, because I'll just keep going on about favorite writers. Um, uh, I was reading Rasheen Meany before I came here. Just, you know, really good beach reads, stuff like that. I just like good words. What about television, then? We, we probably watch too much television, but sex education was, is a big favorite in our house. Uh, and End of the Effing World was a big favorite. Schitt's Creek, though, I'd have to say Schitt's Creek is something that um, we watch it, literally watch it every year and always end up laughing. We're going to play a little extract. We'll ask you why. There's a little bit of mild language use in this one. Warning. <laughs> this is where Johnny and Moira Rose, played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, visit Roland and Jocelyn Shedd, played by Chris Elliott and Jennifer Robertson, for dinner. So, Jocelyn, you were saying that uh, you teach high school? Or you want to finish high school? I'm not sure. I couldn't hear over your husband's chewing. Oh, uh-huh. There it is. There it is, the Vivian Blake bitch face. Excuse me? I didn't want to say anything, but you are my favorite character on Sunrise Bay. Thanks. It's true. 
He lived for Sunrise Bay. I could be doing cartwheels and a thong in front of that television, which I have done. But if your show was on, I was as good as wallpaper. Hey, how many people did you slap on that show? I don't care. She can't remember. There were so many slaps. Enough about me. Let's talk about you signing this contract. Okay. I'll tell you what, Vivian. Moira. Um, I will go ahead and sign off on this sale. Good. For a slap. Excuse me? I've always wanted to be slapped by Vivian Blake. It's true. We've role-played it like a thousand times, mm -hmm. but it is not the real thing. Mm -mm. <laughs> You'd like me to slap you? Yeah. I don't think that I... Well, don't think, just do slap it. Slap him, Moira. I won't. Slap him, Moira. Go ahead and slap him. Slap him. Just slap my husband, slap Moira. Me. John, I won't. Slap him, I'll slap him. Slap me. I won't. Slap me like a bitch. Sign the contract. <laughs> okay. It's like faulty towers run amok. Oh, you know, I was just really about to ask you to explain Shit's Creek, and yeah, you've done it for me already. I, I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it really translates, but it's this family of incredibly wealthy snobs from Los Angeles who lose everything because their tax accountant has been cheating, and of course they know that he was cheating, but they figured they'd never get caught, so they lose everything except for this tiny little town that they have inherited, that they apparently own, called Shit's Creek, S C H I T T S, and this. Fellow who is played by um, Ro who's Roland, who is played by Chris Elliott. He is the uh, I think he's the mayor, and he's the dog catcher, and he's the town mechanic, and he's also the fix-it guy for everyone, the handyman. And his wife Jennifer Robertson is just very cute. And these people from LA walk in with this attitude of, "Oh my God, I can't believe we're staying in a motel. We have to share rooms." And Catherine O'Hara plays this former soap opera star who was known for slapping people. So in order to get this guy to sign the contract, she has to slap him. And she keeps going, I won't slap him. It really is like a John Cleese moment. We have to finish up. So just to finish oh, briefly, buried treasure, please. We ask, give us anything that you feel people should know about. Lassa de Sella. Lassa hmm? de Sella is one of the great unsung artists. She died way too young in her early 30s. She only made three albums. And I think her best album is Rising. Um, I was devastated when I heard that she had died because I just discovered her three months earlier. An Irish fan had sent me an MP3 of one of her songs and said, you should really know this woman. Let's hear Treasure. Lassa de Sala singing Treasure from the album Rising, which is the final choice from Janice Ian, who has been our guest on the Culture Club this evening. Thanks, and it's been man. great having you. This thank you so much. a lot more fun than radio usually is. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you to my production team, Orla Kearney, Dermot Doyle, Liz O'Neill, Evie Meehan, and also to Stephen McLoon on sound. We'll be back thank tomorrow you. at half past four. Until then, for me, Matt Cooper, have a very good evening. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.